Welcome to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today we have a great guest um, calling us from Ireland. Uh, is Catherine Friend. She is an up-and-coming expert on cyber psychology, which is an interesting term in and of itself, and um, its effects on cybercrime legislation. All right, so without further ado... Uh, we'll turn it over to Catherine Friend. Hi, George. Hi, Catherine. This is George, and you also have on the line my compatriot, Ashley Stone. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Um, so you have uh, a focus in uh, cyber psychology, which is an interesting term, and that's where we ran across your recent article. Yes. So can you tell us about what cyber psychology is and how you got into it? Of course. Yeah. So from what I understand, anyway, it is the study of human behavior and thought processes, as regarding technology use, misuse, and also technology design. So as we've noticed, I think a lot more in recent years, uh, advanced technology has made its way into our everyday lives. So it's a real interesting time to, uh, to look at this area. Yeah, I think I was very impressed that there was a cyber psychology journal and degrees already. I haven't seen that in the U.S. Do you see that as a, a burgeoning field in Ireland? Well, we're very lucky. Yes, we have the cyber psychology masters in IADT. That is in South Dublin. I studied there for six years, so I'm a big fan. We since have also supported a cyber psychology masters in the U.K. in Wolverhampton. And a lot of our colleagues work together on papers and we uh, support each other in our conferences. So it is definitely a an expanding field. Oh, that, been, yeah, that's very interesting yeah. because I think as a community, that's kind of a frontline support system for cybersecurity in general, right? It, it feels like in the U.S. we are focused on uh, cybersecurity in terms of incident response or hardening systems. Whereas um, looking at cyber psychology and implementation and design in and of itself could make the tools and the systems safer at the point where they interface with human users. Is that is that kind of the end goal? Right. So my area of interest moves then to forensics and cybercrime. And I absolutely agree. If you go to any crime conference, they always say prevention is key, right? So the next move is to really approach designers of technology and understand, first of all, what are their intentions and how to educate users on those technologies. Excellent. Well, that's that's oh, really that's fascinating. Cool. And I think we focus a lot of uh, our time thinking about how to protect um, businesses and individuals from digital risks that include things like spear phishing attacks and, and other social engineering um, vectors. Uh, and it's all about deception, which is what your uh, recent work has been on, which is deception detection. Um, so we're very excited and would love to hear your thoughts on how successful 
have individuals been in your research studies at, a, at identifying deception online? Because this seems to get at the, the core of many of the things that we, we we're trying to solve. Well, the easy answer is that we're terrible. <laughs> training does seem to help. So police training and you do know, you do learn of some people who are in secret service that do receive certain training. My research, I became interested in certain personality types and whether our own individual levels of trust uh, would affect being able to tell if someone was lying to you. So I looked at uh, real-time communication online and offline. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't show that we were very successful at either. It did show that our innate levels of trust did impact a little bit in online communication. So the real interesting part is that we are innately very trustful human beings. As human beings, it would just be far too exhausting to have a conversation and try to figure out if someone was lying to you all the time. So we just kind of take it for granted that the person is most likely telling the truth, right? Um, that's what we work for, the, the truth bias. Um, but when you talk about online communication, you have an extra layer of um, uh, separation between the people communicating, both physically, and you have an extra medium of typically text communication or video as well, which is super fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is um, really fascinating because um, I was an anthropology major and had done uh, a similar study, not based on deception, but just based on the linguistics of online communication back in undergrad. It's right when uh, AOL Instant Messenger was really big. And I was curious as to, you know, for example, if, if I'm a very sarcastic person <laughs> by nature. So I there were sorts of clues and modifiers that I had to include in chats so that people would know I was joking because, you know, tone is not something that you can infer over text. And I think back then there was a lot of... Um, unease, for example, about kids being in chat rooms because you wouldn't know who's on the other side. And I think, if anything, the trust has somewhat been amplified by social media because we're, we're still locked in a space where you can't see the other person, but they can share things or they can uh, like things that you post, which creates a degree of affinity, which, is, uh, which wasn't available um, in just strict instant messaging days. Yeah, so it really made me think about um, the media richness theory where the idea is online communication is less richness to it than face-to-face -face communication. But you could argue now with a lot of imaging being used, you have the emojis, you have memes, you have GIFs or GIFs, depending on what side of the argument you're there. <laughs> That's an argument we can't resolve in, in one podcast. <laughs> we'll pick our battle. But I would argue now, looking back, that there is quite a lot of richness. And as you said, you do share a lot online. So there is a lot of information there to corroborate if someone tells you something about themselves. Pretty easy to find out whether it's true or not. Yes, and I'm interested in... Um, how, you know, we tend to speak at a, a broad theoretical framework about large um, sets of human behaviors. But I was curious about your thoughts as to how um, these studies relate to individual behavior on social media. You had said something about 
the level of trust and kind of the personality type that we might carry into the conversation. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's this real interesting, you know, going a little bit back to the truth bias, we kind of have this innate feeling that someone is being their honest selves online and trust is reciprocal. So you reciprocate, if you perceive someone as being truthful with you, you'll reciprocate that back. And as you've already mentioned, there's a lot of uh, vulnerabilities there, especially with phishing there. So if you um, are, you know, a natural, naturally trusting person, that could be an issue, right, as well. And I was also interested in levels of uh, perspective taking. It's just type of empathy. So if you can tell from someone else's point of view, how would that affect being able to see if this person was being truthful or not? Oh, interesting. Yes, I think there's something there also about the the lines we draw um, against different channels. So, for example, we have seen individuals be more cautious when they're on their official uh, work channels. For example, a LinkedIn where they may be representing the company or an official Twitter handle. But then when they step out of the office or even just log into their own personal Instagram, it's like they are stepping into a different space, a different level of comfort where they are more willing to, to share or engage. Um, and obviously these are all on the same device. So it becomes these, uh, a set of blurred boundaries and it would be much easier to fish them on their personal accounts and then compromise them through their work accounts. That sounds like a pretty good plan of action right there. <laughs> um, Great. Um, so we have put out some uh, recent research, uh, both last year and just this past month, about uh, disinformation as it relates to both uh, U.S. and recent EU elections. And we know that bad actors take advantage of social media because we have uh, seen this not in a phishing aspect so much, but is in a just let me throw a bunch of uh, volume at the problem and see what gets through. Um, so could you uh speak a little bit about why you think it might be so hard to detect these kinds of bad actors on social how how does that tie back into what you found in your research yeah so i think first of all you have what we i guess call fake news these days and certain topics are always more popular than others typically health concerns are a big one mm-hmm. uh, so it's people's personal interests and how willing they are to share how willing they are to share information. You have people that have never even considered the consequences of sharing false information as well. Um, trying to tell someone on Facebook, actually, no, that's not true. Have you done any other research is quite violating because as you said, it's a personal space. And so it's really interesting to approach people they may have never even considered. And then you have other people who may not um, be aware great information so there are certain newspapers here in Ireland and the UK that we know are not always accurate or even as satirical but others may not be as aware mm-hmm. so I think it's kind of every responsibility social responsibility um, to do these extra checks but not everyone may not may be aware that it's necessary so it's really about education Okay. And then on the curious as to how this might tie into design elements, because I know you've also lectured on design. So with your research in mind, 
and you think about how trusting people are, are there any, um, you know, design ideas or changes to the UI that, that might help, uh, discern truth from fiction? Common sections are always great. There's real cool research on how common sections influence, um, the likelihood of engagement with text and posts, and whether rules on certain websites that are laid out um, are followed or um, enable rules on so you know social norms of different websites. So you have certain places like Reddit where anything goes, and then you have Twitter, which might be more professionally based. So there's all these different social contexts as well. So I think a lot of that may relate to what... Uh, the website is geared towards. Mm, interesting. And those uh, like dislike functions, I think, are actually quite helpful. Okay. Interesting. Um... All right. So you mentioned education as part of being the social responsibility to under for people to identify misinformation. And that's something we've talked a lot about with other cybersecurity professionals across the globe. It's that lack of cyber education and awareness that reaches all ages. And this includes education in grade school for children or adults who didn't grow up in the age of technology. How do you think about digital literacy and education? I'm absolutely all for it. I think it's something we can't ignore at this stage. So in my own PhD research, I've spoken to digital experts across Ireland. These include law enforcement, legal personnel, and IT experts. And the big thing is also resources for education. So while educational training has also not been as successful as we hoped, there's definitely room for improvement. So you're talking about educating large different areas of population from children to the judiciary. And it's also the responsibility of those who are legislating for cybercrime to, to educate themselves as well. I feel. Yeah. So we, I mean, I've toyed around with the idea of, uh, PSAs, you know, there were during world war two, there were several, uh, psychological warfare campaigns mostly consisted of dropping leaflets or jamming radio signals, but there was a broad based uh, attempt to educate the populace on how to spot this type of fake news back then. It's obviously the scale and scope of social and, and other digital platforms makes that a little bit harder than just common PSAs, but certainly there needs to be some effort at just educating the populace on how to maintain a critical thought process. I think yeah, or what have you seen work in terms of getting people to understand the education? Well, you know, I'm not sure there's a correct approach yet or a successful one. Um, at the moment, there's just there, there's so much out there and it's moving so fast. So even so, my research is focused mainly on legislation, mm-hmm. and legislative efforts are quite slow and they're time demanding. And while they're still talking about um, things on Bebo from on MySpace from 10 years ago, we've moved on. <laughs> so that, that's a big thing at the moment. And as I mentioned before, you really have to think about the population you're trying to educate. So unfortunately, a lot of the research at the moment is mainly corporate based, mm-hmm. which is not ideal for trying to give 
security uh, probe workshops to 12-year-olds or to parents. It's a different demographic. You also want to avoid a moral panic, which is just all that's reported on Twitter, which is very frustrating. Right. When you realize that there's no research behind it, but that's the other side of the coin. Research also takes almost just as long. Yes, that is an interesting conundrum. Um, how to, how to do thorough research or well informed legislation when the thing you're trying to uh, legislate or um, regulate is is moving at ten times the speed. Yeah, yeah, it's really really interesting. Sure, I think the main thing is really for those responsible to try and engage themselves as much as they can. But based on my research, um, the people that I've interviewed, while they are not completely optimistic that anything will change right now, there is some optimism that it will change. If we consider when the car was first invented, seatbelts were not a thing. Neither were rules of the road. <laughs> the, only other, right, the only other comparison of cybercrime legislation that I have found is actually to air flight and commercial uh, airplane and so back then they had to try and legislate the air which was absolutely b- b- bizarre thought back then so it, it probably will balance out or some attempts will be made eventually but there are understandably a number of other political issues on the board right now so cybercrime is not or cybersecurity is not going to gain top priority on that at the moment right and i mean you raised the good point that even though social media is well over 10 years old at this point um we're still kind of in the throes of early adoption relative to our understanding of the risks and rewards right so we all lived through a period where social was just a wondrous period where you could you know have conversations in real time with someone four or five time zones away and only now are we beginning to reckon with um things like disinformation around vaccines or uh, overt election interference. I think we, we just hadn't even contemplated those uh, risks at the time. And we're just going through the growing pains of, uh, of realizing that much as your analogy is the car was just kind of a death machine on the road with no rules <laughs> until we figured out that we needed a system to, to control it and ensure the safety of others. Yeah, and I guess the biggest thing that I haven't mentioned yet is jurisdiction. Mm, So sorry, as you just said, it's across time zones. So not only do you need legislation in in countries, you need mutual assistance treaties, you need agreed legislation that is the same across countries, but not every country will have the same legal system, the same resources, the same education. So it is a massive, I love love the word quagmire, one of my participants used, it's my favorite (laughs) word at the moment. It is a real big job for sure. Yes, and I think that also raises a point. We've had uh, Miko Hyponen on the podcast, and he was talking more about cyber warfare, but he was talking about the standard international norms that we've spent more than half a century operating under. Um, even concepts like deterrence do not work in a cybersecurity context because the the warfare, the arsenal, is largely unseen. But y- you bring up the the corollary, which is that the international legal norms are also difficult to apply because the international order is based on borders and we are talking about a borderless space. 
and to add to that level of difficulty is attribution as it gets harder to identify who and where cybercrime is happening. Uh, it just makes that legislation more difficult. Yes, that's what keeps me up at night, I have to admit, because it's so hidden. It's it's quite intangible sometimes. You might even get a notification saying, oh, by the way, your account was hacked two months ago. We've only just found out now. <laughs> right. that's all. You're like, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for telling me. Um, yes, actually, just this week, I got a notification or email from Flipboard which I think the email came in three days after I'd read headlines about it having been reached <laughs> and, and people actually the headlines were people had been in the system for nine months before they discovered it. So really I'm getting the email almost a full year after the thing happened. And I don't even remember signing up for Flipboard. Like I think I used it. I think I used it once. <laughs> I'm like, great. Okay. Well, we'll just change all the passwords again. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's really interesting. So, my research is not in data privacy, but obviously GDPR is a big thing here in Europe at the mm -hmm. moment. And I got to lecture in forensic psychology for the last year. And I got to slip in uh, quite a number of opportunities to talk about cybercrime because it's so embedded in so many different types of crime at the moment. And I had one student put up her hand and she was like, but what's the point of GDPR? I don't care who has my data. And I really had to stop and think. It was an excellent opportunity to try and explain Something that I'm is so embedded in my everyday life um, that literally keeps me up at night to explain to someone that's never even considered the the implications of consent of your data. Yes, and I think that's just this great generational reckoning that we have to contend with because there is an entire generation, likely the students you were lecturing, that have grown up with this type of data gathering as a default. Right. It was it was the the door to pass through to use the Internet. Um, and they don't they don't know what the world was like before people knew everything about you. Yeah, it was great. It was quite quite an eye opening experience. Yes. And also good always that I think a lot of us are so deep in it that we forget what these issues look like to lay people or the average user. You know, if you're at any point, you're an expert in your field, you're talking with other experts at a level that may be uh, great for solving problems, but may be removed many um, degrees away from the people that it would, the populations it would be impacting. But what a great, you know, that was, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say that was uh, one of my original ideas. Apart, you know, eventually to save the world, but one of them <laughs> was to analyze or to investigate how the public saw current cybercrime legislation. And uh, on, you know, I had to narrow that down eventually. But I am really, really interested in that, on that aspect as well, because it is the public that the legislation applies to. Mm -hmm. It feels like a perfect reminder, too, that you still have to educate your students about digital awareness. So how do you do that um, as you engage with your students? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess uh, slipping in the odd subgram reference uh, to as many lectures as possible. <laughs> um, it was nice that I got the opportunity and freedom to present my research to them as well. That was always great because these are um, 
just undergrad psychology students. Their area isn't forensics or cyber psychology. So it is nice to talk to as many different people as possible about these areas that I'm very biased, but you know, I think they're pretty important. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, you may, you may be laying the groundwork for uh, some future education campaigns um, just to raise the questions that they may have taken for granted. Um, yeah. So that's what I think yeah. And so sure. you have, you've partially answered this question already, but we'll, we'll delve in a little uh, further. So um, the question is when it comes to cyber psychology and, and cyber crime or even cyber crime legislation, um, what keeps you up at night? Almost everything else. There's so many other issues on the table right now in Ireland, particularly, and in Europe. We have um, housing crisis. We have climate action. We have a number of other political issues across the pond. So cybercrime is not getting the headlines it needs. And when it does, it's poorly reported on because the education and awareness just isn't out there. And so you have these headlines saying, Facebook gives dopamine. People are addicted to Facebook. And you, you try to try to explain to people, okay, that, that may be partially true, but it's not to the extent that it's going to keep you up and, and ruin your life being addicted to online technology. So it's, again, trying to teach research methods and critical thinking to the general populace who uh, wouldn't really think about this in their everyday life. It's, it's real, super interesting. Yes, I, I wonder if there is, um, to bring it back to the, design element if there's some oh i don't really want to say the word gamification but i wonder if there is some way to use design to engage these issues that encourage a more nuanced interpretation of uh, either what you are interacting with on social in terms of at the post level and then um, at the more macro news level I wonder if like just giving out, you were talking about uh, PSAs, maybe just like a simple checklist of, have you heard this information anywhere else? Have you, who has written this information? Who are they affiliated with? Has anyone else ever heard of this person? Just a simple checklist. But now that you're talking about gamification, thinking about Fitbit, I know this is slightly off topic, but they managed to kind of make a game about of being healthy and being fit and um, comparing the amount of steps per day to your friend's steps. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could steal that idea somehow. Yes, like who who gets the most points for spotting fake news? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, okay. Well, our our motto here at Safeguard Cyber is without fear. So we would we'd like to end on a more positive note. So given where you are in your research or given your understanding of the current landscape, We've already asked you what makes you afraid, but we'd like to end with what gives you the most hope. There is legislation out there and it is getting thought about and discussed. So it is out there. It's not in every country. It's not always very well attended in, the, in our governments, but there are questions being asked. And you see it more and more in our everyday media. If you look on TV, there are a lot of TV shows and films being asking these really important questions. So people are wanting answers. It's just not being pushed to the top right now. But it will get there, hopefully, maybe eventually. Okay. Well, 
I mean, certainly through persistence and effort. I mean, that's the only way we've ever gotten to anything. Yes. Yeah, let's go with that. (laughs) All right. Well, um, great. Well, thank you again for taking the time. Uh, We really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing more of your research. And the same to you. Good luck with your work and I'll keep an eye out for you guys. All right. Bye now. Bye. That was so interesting. I can't wait to see where the field of cyber psychology goes. I mean, it can only get deeper from here. I mean, it's embedded in pretty much any interaction at this point that an end user has with any sort of technology. Yes. Um, all right. So moving on, the news that we are watching this week is very fresh. Um, as of this recording, uh, Tesco, the UK um, and actually global grocery giant, has had its Twitter account taken over. Um, first with what appears to be a Bitcoin scam and then oddly reskinning the account. So it actually loses its blue verified check uh, to resemble and seemingly parody Bill Gates. So a somewhat relatively harmless uh, account takeover, but certainly embarrassing for the brand. Um, other news that we are following is uh, our own Senator Mark Warner from Virginia and Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, have introduced a new act into Congress. Uh, it is called the Designing Accounting Safeguards to Help Broaden Oversight and Regulations on Data, or Dashboard Act for short. The bill targets tech companies with over 100 million monthly active users. Um, And per the bill's text, tech giants will have to inform both end users and regulators about what information they are collecting about users and if and how they are monetizing that data. In addition, the companies will have to inform users about how much their data is worth, which appears to be a new frontier. It's great to see that the value of data is being talked about. It reminds me of when we spoke with Evelyn D'Souza about the value of user data and what that means. Yeah, she had brought up the idea of like a data bank, something that users could trade on what is now effectively the currency of their data. So um, very quickly, we now see legislation beginning to try and catch up with those ideas, but we'll see where it goes. We will continue to watch that regulation. Um, But until next time, this is the Zero Hour signing off. If you've liked what you heard, give us a subscribe, give us a rating, give us some comments. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, we thank Abby Bruce for our sound design and production and Matthias Zaffaletti for our theme music. All right, stay safe. Stay safe.